This is going to seem a little strange, but I want you to indulge me in something this evening, all right? Everybody grab their Bible, hold it up, and repeat after me. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I can do what it says I can do. Tonight I will be taught the Word of God. I boldly confess that my mind is alert. My heart is receptive. I will never be the same. Never, never, never. I will never be the same. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, this is how a certain pastor at a large church in Houston, Texas, opens up his teaching at every service. I'm not going to say his name. You can figure it out. Large church, large church, really large church, Houston, Texas. So I'm just not going to say his name from the pulpit, okay? Now, we say that, and it sounds innocent enough, doesn't it? It sounds like, well, yeah, I agree with all of that. It it sounds great, you know? However, this same pastor brags about the fact that he avoids controversial subjects in his teaching, such as sin, condemnation, judgment, hell, and the wrath of God. He avoids those subjects in his teaching. Now, you just heard what we all did, holding up the Word of God and going through it like we did. But now he avoids these things. So a pastor or a church that doesn't want to teach about sin, then there's really no need to teach about a Savior then, is there? I mean, really, if you're not going to talk about sin, why talk about the one that uh, can free you from your sin? So what we're going to be looking at over the next three services, tonight, uh, Sunday morning services, and next Wednesday, is the book of Titus. And if you'll turn your Bibles to the book of Titus, We're going to study through this book. We're going to deal with chapter 1 tonight, chapter 2 on Sunday, and chapter 3 uh, on uh, next Wednesday. And we're going to see that what Paul says is a problem church on the island of Crete. Um, it's like a lot of problem churches today, like this one mentioned previously. Okay, We're going to see how that uh, works itself out. Uh, so the church of Crete is a church... Crete is a church lacking uh, sound doctrine. We're going to see that phrase repeated as we go through the book of Titus. Sound doctrine and how the church on the island of Crete came to be that way. So the book of Titus. The book of Titus was written approximately uh, A.D. 64. It was written by the Apostle Paul sometime between 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. And there's a proof text for that in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. Paul makes reference of, of uh, uh, Titus being with him. And so you can just kind of do your own interpolation there of the text and say, well, wow, given that, he was there, now he's here. So the letter obviously was written at the time that he was on the island of Crete. So sometime in between those two books. Um, and Paul had obviously been on the island of Crete uh, some years before. We're not sure exactly when, but he was there, obviously, because he has very intimate knowledge about the island of Crete. He's seen what is going on there, and it has uh, stirred up in him the need to write this letter to Titus to try to straighten some things out in the church. So 
what's the purpose of the book of Titus then? Uh, it's a letter from Paul, and it's known as one of the pastoral epistles. It's, it's, it's a letter. That's what epistle means. And he's encouraging Titus to cor- correct some things in the church on the island of Crete. So Titus is a young pastor, and it's just one of the pastoral epistles. The other two are 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. So Timothy was another young pastor as well. And as I was studying it over the past four or five days, uh, it was interesting to set up in my office and just down the hall is this new young pastor that we have. And I thought, I'll write him a letter. (laughs) Obviously, I'll just walk down the hall and talk to him. But uh, So it was written to Titus, this young pastor, who was under Paul. And it was to give instruction on the operation, the purpose, and the function of the church there. We see in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, that he's going to exhort Titus to set in order the things that are lacking and to appoint elders in every city. That's going to be a key verse as we go through all the book of Titus. But keep that uh, in your minds and on your hearts because it's just very important to what we're going to be looking at. So what is the origin of the church on Crete? It's this island out in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, and you look at it and you go, how did a church get there? Well, turn over real quick, save your place there in Titus, and turn over to Acts chapter 2, second chapter of Acts. A lot of stuff takes place in the second chapter of Acts. Are you there? I'm not. Pages are sticking together. Acts chapter 2, we're going to start with verse 2. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now just real quick. Since we're on that, uh, they begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. What was that for? Why did they speak in these other tongues? Flip over one page to chapter 1, verse 8. And I, don't, I really don't understand why there is confusion in some churches about that scripture. Because in verse 8, it tells us exactly what it was for. Chapter 1, verse 8 says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me. Where? In Jerusalem, and in Judea, and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So when we see him speak in these foreign tongues in chapter 2, what's it for? To be witnesses in all those different places, right? So at this scene that we have when the Holy Spirit comes upon them in Acts chapter 2, we're going to see that there are groups of people that are there and they're mentioned. Um, Jump down to verse 7, it says, Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born. Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya joining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, verse 11, Cretans and Arabs. Where do you think Cretans come from? Crete, yeah. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure that out, do you? So, we see that there are Cretans there at this time. So, what probably happened? Let's just break it down logically. Here's, you have these Cretans, and this whole thing takes place. 
they probably stay however long they're going to stay in Jerusalem, that area, and then they go back to the island, right? Well, during their uh, stay in Jerusalem, uh, they were probably equipped to some degree uh, in the Apostles' Doctrine, as we also see in chapter 2. So they, they kind of had a feel on how to do church in a home. So they go back to the island of Crete, and that's probably exactly what took place. You know, they started one here, and then another one started up over there. And then as we go forward in this, we're going we're gonna to see the problems that, that uh, started from that. So I've kind of entitled this, this whole series through the next three teachings called The Church from Jerusalem to Crete. What happened? And you're going to understand why when we get into this, something just went awry on the island of Crete with these churches. So... Uh, things probably started off there with real excitement and zeal, probably really trying to uh, do church the way that they had been taught in Jerusalem. Uh, keep, uh, keep in mind that was very early on in church, and so uh, I won't say that they were making up the rules as they went along, but certainly there were things that were taking place that they were, were things were new and fresh to them because it was a new church. Uh, but without proper direction, you could see how heresy could sneak into the church, right? And just bad teaching, bad doctrine. And it should give us some insight in how we have denominations today, right? Denominations come strictly from what? Division in the church. That's where it started. And not to say that this group over here, this group over here are wrong. They're just different as long as they're teaching sound doctrine, right? So, who was Titus? Well, we know from Galatians chapter 2, verse 3, that he was Greek. Uh, Titus 1, 4, either shows us either directly or indirectly. He was one of Paul's converts. He went with Paul to Jerusalem, and we see in that time while he was in Jerusalem, also in Galatians chapter 2, that Paul was resisting that Titus should have to be circumcised. That whole thing that went on there, based on Acts chapter 15. And that council in Jerusalem then decided that, uh, or determined that salvation came through, uh, uh, came by grace through faith alone. All right, so they did. But keep in mind, there are still those, let's say you got this group of people that were in Jerusalem and they left and went back to Crete. Did they catch that? Uh, you know, we have to always keep in mind how communication was back then. It could take months to get a message from Jerusalem to Crete, if, if not even longer. So he was with Paul in Corinth also and was left in Corinth to deal with trouble in the churches. Uh, this was also testimony to Paul's faith in Titus as a leader. Paul trusted Titus. He, he knew that he was going to take care of these things, okay? So Paul refers to Titus as a partner and a fellow worker in 2 Corinthians. And at some point, while he was with Paul in Crete, he was left there to deal with the trouble in the churches. And we're going to see that when we get into our text. Later on, uh, Titus would eventually turn things over to Artemis or Tychicus. And then he was with Paul again in Rome in uh, Nicopolis. After that Nicopolis, Titus left for uh, an area called Dalmatia. You know, that's where all the spotted dogs come from, in case you were wondering. Yeah. At that time they did a census and there was 101. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> anyway, that's modern-day Bosnia, okay? That's where he wound up. So, the church in Crete. 
Remember our key verse, Titus 1.5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. So we're going to see in this study the word good and the phrase good works. We're going to see that repeated quite often. We're also going to see the word doctrine and the phrase sound doctrine used quite often. And we're going to break down this letter verse by verse, as we do here at Calvary Chapel, and also by its three chapters. And just think about the headings we're going to use for these chapters because they're going to be important. Chapter 1 is leadership in the church. Chapter 2 will be discipleship in the church. And chapter 3 will be relationship in the church. Chapter 1, leadership in the church. Chapter 2, discipleship in the church. And chapter 3, relationship in the church. And by looking at these key points, we're going to see what Paul was encouraging Titus to do. So, by a show of hands, how many of you here have been a part of what you would term as a bad church experience? How many of you? Just raise your hand if you've gone through that. How many of you think you're in one right now? That's a, <laughs> I would be anxious to know that. Uh, why do you think that bad church experience took place where you were? What was the cause of that? And I would submit to you it's one of those three things, if not two of those three things, or if not all three. Either a lack of leadership, a lack of discipleship, or a lack of relationship in those churches. And it can really... Uh, it can really mess you up, you know, for want of a better term, because you, you've invested yourself in that place. You have come to a point where you've actually even, to some degree, trusted in those leaders, uh, trusted in those people that are a part of that church, and somewhere along the way, through misunderstanding or whatever, you were let down, right? And you determined it was time to move on. And again... Think about those three things and look back at that experience, and I bet you can, you can blame it on one of those three things. And sad as it is, in a lot of churches, whatever it was, the reason you left for is still going on. It, it, ha- it hasn't changed. And we're going to see why as we look at this. So, chapter 1, leadership. We're going to break that down into three parts this evening. We're going to look at the commitment of the leader. We're going to look at the character of the leader, and we're going to look about at the commission of the leader. The commitment, the character, and the commission. It has been said that leadership is learned first in obedience. In other words, I must first learn to be an obedient follower in order to be a a good leader. So then, in the church, one must be an obedient follower of Christ in order to be a good church leader, right? So a good church leader is an effective church leader and a loving church leader. Those are two qualities we would want to see in, a, in, in leadership, right? Okay, Paul wrote this letter. Let's, let's look at the Apostle Paul just real quick. Paul was without a doubt an, an, an example, a shining example of an obedient follower of Christ and a good leader in the early church. We, I mean, he wrote half the New Testament, so... We know that to be true. Paul knew and understood that the church must be built on Christ and not on any other person or thing. He also knew that one day 
he would not be there to build, encourage, discipline, and to teach. So he trained young pastors like Timothy and Titus to assume leadership in the church after he was gone. Paul urged them to center their lives and preaching on the Word of God, sound doctrine. 2 Timothy 3, uh, verses 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. If you just took that one verse and applied it in the church today, as far as it goes with leadership, just look how much could be done with just that one verse. Uh, so Paul urged them to train up others to carry on the ministry. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 2 says, And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So leaders, train up leaders to carry on the ministry. Ephesians chapter 4, 11 and 12, And he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Why? It's answered right after that, the next verse. For the equipping of saints, for the work of the ministry, and for the edifying of the body of Christ. So it's equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. What is leadership in place for? Equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. Now, in order to equip anybody to do anything, you first need to know how to do it yourself, right? Uh, Jay came and put some windows in for me a couple weeks ago. And I watched as Jay put those windows in. And I can just in, in all confidence say now that I still don't know how to put a window in. So <laughs> it takes time. It's a, it's a skill. It's a task. But it's something that you have to spend time doing in order to be able to train somebody else to do it, right? And that would be true of any job that any of us have. Uh, I know Greg works on windshields. I'm good at cracking and breaking windshields. Greg's good at fixing them. Okay? I'm no good at fixing them. I'm good at breaking them. You know? So we have to be trained up to do those things. We have to be equipped. And the same thing would apply in the church today. So the, I, I find it, found it interesting. I read this quote, and it's a little bit uh, humbling in some ways, scary in others, I guess, but it says, the best testimony for any church leader is that he has equipped the saints so well, he's no longer necessary. I don't think I've done that yet, <laughs> by, by any means. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure I even want to do that yet, you know. <laughs> I'm still in that equipping stage myself. So, uh, so I could go on to this lengthy dissertation about what a good leader is, what it looks like, based upon, you know, modern-day worldly principles, books that are written, lectures, and all that. But, as is our custom here, what we're going to do is look at what God's Word says, at what a leader looks like. John MacArthur wrote that the book of Titus is an evangelical letter whose ultimate purpose was to prepare the church for more effective witness to the unbelievers on the island of Crete. And that's kind of a mouthful, but you follow me on that. It's an evangelical letter with the ultimate purpose of preparing the church to be effective witness to the unbelievers in Crete. So let's look at Titus 1.1. And the Apostle Paul, who is a committed follower of Christ, a committed leader for Christ. So our first bullet point, committed leader. Leaders in the church, a commitment of the leader. Without a doubt, we can look at the life of Paul and we can say, this was a guy that was committed as a leader, wasn't he? 
So Titus 1.1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. So the salutation that Paul has, you know, he always starts off most of his letters with, with something like that. Uh, remember the one where he's addressing uh, most excellent Theophilus, right? Who some believe was Theophilus witness that he had. I, I don't, Theophilus. Didn't really go the way I hoped, but <laughs> so the awfulest. Get do you get it? <laughs> okay, you're with me. So Paul, once again, who was Paul? Paul was Saul of Tarsus. Saul was born a Jew. Saul was a Jewish name, and that Jewish name means destroyer. Well, that would fit Paul, uh, Saul, wouldn't it? I mean, we know of his former life before he came to Christ. And destroyer is something that would fit uh, him to, uh, perfectly. But he also lived life as a Hebrew and also a Pharisee. And we know that from uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 5. It tells us all those things. Lived life as a Hebrew. He was also a Pharisee of Pharisees, even. In Acts 8, uh, chapter 8, verse 3, we see he persecuted the early church, which we know. In Acts chapter 9, we see the uh, story of how he was converted on the road to Damascus. And then in Acts chapter 13, verse 9, his name was changed to Paul, which was a Gentile name. And it means worker. So he went from being a destroyer to a worker. And I think that's really interesting. And we see that in Paul's life, how that just changed. Uh, he also refers to himself as a bondservant of God. If you go back into Exodus chapter 21, you see this, this whole thing that where it's explaining about a bondservant and how he serves his master for seven years. And in the seventh year, he has that choice to be let go, to be made free of being a, a slave or a bondservant. And it's his choice. So if he's uh, a servant of his master and really likes his master uh, and wants to stay, then kind of this strange thing happens. They take him out uh, to, a, to a doorpost and uh, they take a hammer and drive a hole through his ear with an awl. And then he becomes the bondservant of that master for the rest of his life by choice. I want to serve this master the rest of my life. Now, if he decides he doesn't want to, then he's let go. And uh, any belongings that were his before he came, he gets to take with him, which would include wives, children, and all that. If, if, if he uh, obtained those while he was in the service of the master, those stay. But anything that he brought with him, he can take. But if he decides to stay, he stays with everything, with wife, kids, and then serves that master. And it's a very beautiful picture for us, isn't it? Because to be a bondservant of our master, Jesus Christ, to give our lives over to him, to serve him the rest of our lives, it's just a really neat picture uh, for us there. So a bondservant, uh, the definition would be devoted to another, disregarding one's own interests. You know, I... He's basically saying, I don't have any interests or a life outside of this on my own that I'm interested in. I just want to serve the master. 
and then devoted to God and Christ, dying to self to serve the Lord, basically. That should be the relationship as a bondservant one would have to the Master, as we should have to Jesus Christ. So it says, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. According to the faith of God's elect. God's elect. That's why Jerry should turn on the reverb right now. Elect. Now there's controversy in the church, right? What's the elect mean? What's that all about? Well, flip over real quick to Romans chapter 8. We're going to look at that because I, I, I do want you to be clear on that on that text, what they're talking about. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Actually, we'll start with verse 28. Romans 8, 28. There's going to be some key terms that, if you like writing in your Bible, you might underline these as we come across them. 28, it says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Verse 30, key verse. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So key words there, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. All of those things by God to be His, right? Before the foundations of the world, God called us as His elect. We were predestined, we were called, we were justified, and we were glorified. Called by God to be that. So when we, make, or when we come to Jesus Christ, we t- turn our lives over Him to be our Lord and Savior, and we receive the Holy Spirit, His Holy Spirit, as a seal of approval, basically, for that in our lives, then this has come to pass, right? We have been, we are the elect. Now, we were the elect before that even happened, because God knew it was going to happen, right? God knows, He foreknew, that we would come to know Him. So He's known that from all time. So you just think, especially when you want to, give up hope on someone, never give up hope on someone coming to the Lord because it may be that they're called and their time to come to Him just has not happened yet, right? When they do come, they get the seal of approval by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to live inside them. When that happens, I want you to stay with me on this. When that happens, you are God's. And as Christ said, no one can snatch you away. So if God, if if Christ said, I will send you the promised Holy Spirit, and we come to know the Lord, and we receive that promised Holy Spirit, God doesn't break His promises, does He? No, He does not. If you receive that promised Holy Spirit into your life, you are His. So when somebody asks you the question, can you lose your salvation? Think about that. If you have the promised Holy Spirit, No, you can't. You're His. The key is, do you have His promised Holy Spirit? That's something for you and God to work out. So, it says, according to the faith of God's elect, that elect, the predestined, the called, justified, glorified, acknowledgement of the truth which accord with godliness. Acknowledgement of the truth 
which accords with godliness. What's the truth? It's the gospel. It's Jesus, right? So Paul has two basic aims in his ministry, to lead them to faith by conversion, which is evangelism, and also to lead them on in faith, which is discipleship or education. So you come to know the Lord through evangelization, and then you grow in the Lord through education, right? Verse 2, In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, which is a future tense, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. So only through salvation in Jesus Christ alone. But hope does not imply uncertainty, does it? Hope does not imply looking forward to what has already been. It's, it does imply looking forward to what has already been promised before time began. That's hope. So eternal life, when we hear that phrase, eternal life, it's not just a future hope. It's also a present possession. We have been given eternal life, but it's something that we look forward to, eternal life in heaven. Verse 3, But has in due time manifested His word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. Has in due time manifested His word. In due time, in His perfect timing, and according to His perfect will. He manifested His word, Jesus Christ, through preaching. Manifested just means made known. So, he manifested his word through preaching in due time because it was not fully revealed in the Old Testament, right? It was fully revealed in the New Testament when Christ came. So, in due time, Jesus Christ, God's word, was manifested to us. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. And then in 1 John, John also writes, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life, the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Jesus Christ manifested that to them. So Paul, we see in these verses, certainly, but in all the rest of Scripture that we have on Paul, he was committed. He was a committed leader. So, he says in verse 4, To Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. To Titus. So imagine Titus on the island there. He's got dozens of cities with all these churches going on. And we need to keep in mind that Churches in these cities probably started off as one church and now could be many uh, just because of the infamous church splits that happen, right? So, uh, so he's trying to keep up with all of them, dealing with who knows what all, but the least of which is, is you know, false teachers. Uh, so he receives this letter from his mentor, his teacher, his counselor, Paul. So just imagine that excitement. He probably hasn't heard anything from him in months. You know, it's not like he got, hey, wait, hold on a second, I got a text from Paul, you know, <laughs> or I got an email or whatever. It's, everything happened by letter or by word, you know, somebody traveling to an area, right? So this would be very exciting to receive any kind of communication from anybody, <laughs> but certainly from Paul. Uh, I remember when I was in college, back in, <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
At that time, there were no phones in our dorm rooms. There was like a pay phone downstairs, and it, for whatever reason, was right next to the laundry facilities. So you couldn't even hear when you were talking on the phone. But it was, you know, coin-operated. You had to pay for a phone call. But Chris would write me letters. Uh, don't, don't know, Chris and I were the proverbial high school sweethearts. And uh, actually, next week, we'll have been married 31 years. But anyway, I'd get letters from Chris. And I was so excited, you know, just to, to hear from her because, uh, you know, I was in college. A dollar was like, that was like a lot of money. I couldn't waste it on a phone call, you know. So I get a letter from Chris, and, uh, you know, it's just real exciting to hear from her and hear what's going on. And, uh, you know, yeah, we saw each other every two or three weeks, something like that. But still, that letter was great. I, I know you guys know what I mean. If you've been in a place where... Uh, Military is a big, uh, uh, that's a big thing as well, because that's about all you get is letters. And so uh, it's exciting. It's a really neat thing. You want to read through it, and you save it, and you read it again. And uh, so he's getting this letter. But now this isn't a letter that's just for Titus. It's certainly instruction for Titus. But what's he probably going to do? He's going to use it as the proof positive to share with all those churches. So as we go through this first chapter, you're going to see that there's things that are going to be said that's going to be very convicting to the Cretans. So, Titus, a true son in our common faith, uh, obviously since he was a convert of Paul, directly or indirectly, but he's in Christ Jesus. The common faith was faith in Jesus Christ that he's talking about. Grace, mercy, and peace. Now, this is a little bit different, because normally from Paul we hear what? Grace and peace. And you've heard it said before that there is no peace without grace. So grace always comes before peace. Well, Paul added mercy in the middle of this one as well, which I thought was, was interesting. But uh, keeping in mind grace, again, you've heard Pastor Jeff say this, grace is getting what we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. So grace, mercy, and peace. And we could obviously devote an entire teaching just on those three things, but we're not going to go there. Verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, our key verse, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. For this reason, I left you in Crete. So Paul had been with Titus on Crete. We're not uh, exactly sure when. Paul left Titus on Crete for for a purpose. We're finding out what that purpose is. He's basically saying, Titus, this is the reason I left you there. So you kind of get the tone of Paul. If Titus had been there, And Paul wrote him this letter. Certainly it's a letter of encouragement, but it could be kind of a letter of rebuke too. Hey, Titus, or a letter of encouragement to say, you remember why I left you there? You remember we talked about this. (laughs) You remember you had to do the same thing in Corinth. You remember that? So I'm reminding you, reaffirming to you, Titus, this is what you need to do. This is the reason why. So... Keeping in mind that the origin of the church on Crete was probably from the day of Pentecost. And so they started the churches that would be there. And we don't know how many years have passed, but quite a few years. And so now, you think about it. If, suppose you had some uh, relatives that, uh, you know, you lived in uh, Jerusalem at that time. And you had some relatives that lived on Crete. And you decided, oh, I think I'll go out to Crete and kind of check things out. You go out to Crete. And you see what's going on in their churches. And you're like, hey, wait a minute. Because you're a Jew, hey, you're not quite doing things right here. You know, you've forgotten about the circumcision thing, and 
you know, there's just other things like the, the feasts and the holidays and all these different things that you're really not paying any attention to. You need to reinstitute those in your church. So legalism could creep back into the church, couldn't it? Very easily. And probably had, and we know that by what we're going to see uh, in the text. So this is the reason that I left you in Crete. Key point here, that you should set in order the things that are lacking. What needed to be set in order? Well, we see later on in chapter 1, there was obviously some false teachers there. Uh, certainly some ineffective leaders. There was heresy going on. But set in order, if you look at the Greek in that, there's a medical term that they use there called ortho, if you've heard that before. So basically to straighten, fix what is broken. Broken leg. The church was broken. And you needed to set it in order. You needed to uh, amend, if you will, what is defective. You need to take care of that. So we need to set in order. And then also set in order the things that are lacking. So not only are they doing things wrong, they're also just not doing some things. Uh, I'm sure you all have heard the definition of, you know, where we talk about sins of omission and sins of commission, right? Sins of commission are things that God commands us to do that we don't do. Sins of omission, I got that right? Yes. <laughs> Sins of omission are the things that he says not to do that we do anyway, right? We don't have any problem with those when it says do not steal, you know, do not murder and all those. Those are the things he says don't do. The problems, the ones we struggle with a lot of times are the, I want you to do this and we don't do it. That's sin as well, sins of commission. So that's probably going on. So the things that we're lacking, well, as I, the two phrases that I told you at the beginning, good works and sound doctrine, those are lacking there. So now Titus has the awesome opportunity and the authority given to him by Paul to rescue the Christian, Christians on Crete from the dangerous churches that they were in. Can we all relate to that? Those that raised their hands earlier, we got this thing going on in the church. It's a dangerous church. What's going on? So now Titus is going to be able to come in under Paul's authority and straighten these things out. So trying to set up a setting, set up a safe church in each city. And um, we will see that Titus 1.5 is church done correctly. It seems like such a simple verse. But we're going to see that that is church done correctly. And we, as we see, it's an apostolic mandate from Paul. So imagine, if you will, though, all of us that's been in a bad church experience, imagine, if you will, implementing these things in the church. When you know that there's families in the existing leadership in that church. You know, there's, there's power and influence from those leaders in the community in that church. There's these different personalities. Can I get an amen on that? I mean, have you guys experienced that? A term I heard was really neat. It said, hunkered down in the bunker called the church. <laughs> they're hunkering down. They're not going to be overthrown. You know what they're saying, right? It's just, uh, just an ugly situation. So, he says in verse 5, back in Titus, that... For this reason I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking and what? And appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Now the terminology there is very important because we see it used over and over in the New Testament and it says what to elders? Appoint elders. It's not a vote. 
It's not a congregational decision. It's the leader in that church appointing the elders. And as we go down a little further, we're going to see what the character of those leaders are, or those future leaders, so that it's not that difficult to determine that person's an elder or that person's an elder because they're already operating in the capacity. These characteristics are already evident in their life to be an elder. So nowhere in Scripture does it reference voting on the eldership of the church. Nowhere in Scripture does it reference church by congregational rule, except in one place. Old Testament, children of Israel, we know how that worked out. All right? <laughs> Acts chapter 14, verse 23 says, So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So when they had appointed elders, who's they? It's the other apostles and other elders and leaders that were already in place, right? So here at Calvary Chapel, how's that done? The leaders that are in place watch, they keep an eye on godly men. They look to them and they say, hey, these things look to be present in their lives. We think that maybe they would be one that would be a, a good elder. We pray about it, the leadership does, and then at some point in time, if we decide that's the route we feel God leading us, we would appoint them into that position. You saw the same thing when it comes to uh, the role of a pastor. No difference. No difference at all. Uh, I mean, there's a difference in that I'm here more than I used to be. <laughs> Let's put it that way. But elder, bishop, pastor, the terminology in the Greek is all the same. It's overseer and shepherd. They all mean the same thing. So, Let's talk about that a little more. So uh, Paul's reminding Titus the necessity to appoint elders. So elder in the Greek, it comes from the word presbyteros. Ooh, that sounds a lot like Presbyterian. It means overseer. Bishop in the Greek is episkopos. Oh, another one, episcopal. What does it mean? Overseer. Pastor in the Greek is poima, and it means shepherd one who feeds or tends the flock. But certainly overseers right along with that as well, right? So, Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. And he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. For what? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So the terms or those titles, elder, bishop, pastor, they're all interchangeable with different gifts applied because we see one of the gifts is teaching, right? So you might have a teaching elder. Now Jeff is, by title at our church, senior pastor, but he is a teaching elder, is what he is. Tonight, now it might be a stretch. <laughs> I'm a teaching elder. Because <laughs> it all comes down to do the people learn anything, you know? That's the whole thing. First Corinthians chapter 12 verses 4 through 7 that says there are diversities of gifts but the same spirit there are differences of ministries but the same Lord and there are diversities of activities but it is the same God who works all in all but the manifestation of the spirit is given to each one for the profit of all these gifts that are given even to the elders the leaders of the church are for the benefit of the flock of God so again think of the, the context of a pastor just being a teaching elder. I think Chuck Smith says it really well. Um, there's a book available in the bookstore, if you guys have ever seen it, called Calvary Chapel Distinctives. And it really explains 
a lot of this very, very well. So I urge you to get a copy of that. Uh, Teresa's got some extra copies, I think, in there for tonight even. So, but Pastor Chuck, uh, in his book, Calvary Chapel Distinctions, he points out on the chapter on church government, this order. The pastor is ruled by the Lord with the unity of the eldership for all to discover the mind and will of Jesus Christ for his church. So again, the pastor is ruled by the Lord with the unity of the eldership for all to discover the mind and will of Jesus Christ for his church. It's his church, Jesus Christ's church, and we as leaders are stewards of that. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2 says, All are overseers, but all should be able to teach. So that's one of the qualifications for an elder is that they should be able to teach. Now you think about that. Really, if you've got the characteristics of an elder in your life, what is teaching? Sharing something with someone else that maybe they don't already know. I mean, it's really all it is. And that may not be from the pulpit. It could be in the classroom. It could be in your home. It could be any number of places. But just able to teach about the love of Jesus Christ. So, we've talked about commitment. Now we're going to talk about the character of the leader. Now knowing that the elder, the bishop, the pastor, the overseer, the shepherd, the leader, the qualifications or the character is still the same for all of those. Character, Webster's definition, the mental and moral qualities distinctive to an individual. And I don't always, always like Webster's definition, but that's pretty good when you think about it. The mo mental and moral qualities distinctive to an individual. It's also been said that others can ruin your reputation, but only you can ruin your character. So let's focus on what character looks like. Verse 6, If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. Blameless. I think uh, <laughs> a real good term for that would be a Teflon Christian, okay? Nothing sticks, all right? Which I've always wondered, if nothing sticks to Teflon, how do they get it to stick to the pan? Does anybody else wonder about that? I, just something I wonder about. So nothing sticks, nothing stains. No charge of false doctrine or irregular behavior can be proved. And here's why. In the life of an elder, in the life of a leader, they're certainly not sinless, are they? None of, us, none of us are. When we come to Christ, we're not sinless. But we should sin less. The difference, someone who is really following the Lord and trying to their best to be the man or woman of God that wants them to be, repents very quickly. They recognize when they've been in the wrong, they take it to the Lord, and they repent of that. So, someone comes along, an accuser, the accusation can't hold up if they've taken it to the Lord and already repented of it, right? Now, repentance certainly goes to the Lord, but when you're in a situation with a board of elders or in discipleship, an accountability group, others are made aware of that as well, aren't they? And you tell them to pray for that, and you're repenting before men that particular sin, it's taken care of. So the accusation is not going to stick because it's already been taken care of. Uh, with the Lord. So uh, they're not sinless, but any sin is repented of quickly. Repentance is simply acknowledgement of the sin 
an acknowledgement of the Savior. If you keep those two principles in play when it comes to sin, you'll be just fine. I'm acknowledging that I sinned. I'm acknowledging that I missed the mark, that I fell short. But I also acknowledge my Savior for forgiveness, repentance. So, blameless, above reproach. You'll see that term used as well. If I look through these characteristics for an elder, that one right there, it's kind of like that, you know, when you're getting instructions on something and you come up to like instruction number three and it says, if you don't understand, go back to number one. (laughs) You know, blameless covers that because of all these things that are listed here that we're going to be looking at, blameless is something that you always have to come back to. So, blameless. Some years ago, (laughs) I share this because this is the kind of thing that comes up uh, with the intellectual people that we have in the church today. Most of you are aware that I enjoy playing golf. Okay? So, a couple years ago, an accusation came along basically saying it was right after I became ordained as a pastor here that I was a member at Greeley Country Club. And if you know anything about Greeley Country Club, it's very expensive to be a member there. And I'm not. I'm not, and I never have been a member at Greeley Country Club. Not that there's anything necessarily wrong with that, but certainly as a pastor, I have to look at, okay, if I'm a member at Greeley Country Club, and you give your tithes and offerings, and they pay my salary... This doesn't look right, does it? I don't think, I wouldn't feel for myself that I would be above reproach in that because I just wouldn't. It just doesn't feel right to me. Uh, that would be like if you pulled up in the parking lot and, you know, there's a sign there reserved for Pastor Jim and you know, I got a new Mercedes or something sitting there. It, it, it just doesn't work, does it? It's, it's, it's not a good picture of what you would see in this. Not that in and of itself there's anything wrong with it, you know, but yet it's, it's kind of, you need to be above reproach. The perception even of that is just not good. So, uh, so I'm not a member of the Greeley Country Club, but I want to qualify that by saying if, if anybody wants to donate a membership, I, I could work with that. You know, I mean, at that point, I don't want to zap your joy. You know, if that's something you want to do, I, I'm okay with that. So, Remember, a Teflon Christian is blameless. The husband of one wife. Oh, my word. We could spend months on this one alone. We're not going to. I'm going to go over this quickly and just give you some of what <laughs> over the years has come about. It says, the husband of one wife. So that means married. Okay? Husband of one wife, married. So does that mean you can't be an elder unless you're married? I don't know, but it also says that you need to uh, have faithful children. So then that would also say, if you use that logic, not only you have to be married, but you have to have children before you can be an elder. What about someone that's widowed? They're not married any longer, are they? You know, we really look at you as a man of God, but your wife just passed away, so we're going to have to get you married off again real quick, or we just can't, I mean, it, it's somewhat ridiculous, right? We, we tend to take these things to the ridiculous level, I think. Uh, what if he 
wasn't married because his wife died, but he did have kids. And he was married once before, and he just had the one wife. You know, it's like juggling these things. Divorce. Divorce is a big one. There are churches that say he cannot, under no circumstances, be divorced. How many of you are familiar with Bob Coy, Pastor Bob Coy? You know about Pastor Bob Coy is divorced? He was married for two weeks. <laughs> he was working in Las Vegas at the time, but he wasn't a Christian. He wasn't a believer at the time. There's a distinction there. Because if we have new life in Christ, a lot of those previous mistakes that were made, obviously. So, a divorced person. Now we know even Jesus said, and he pointed out uh, the law of Moses when he was talking to the Pharisees, that uh, except in the case of what? Sexual immorality, right? So if a husband who uh, is up possibly can being considered for leadership or an elder in the church, and there was sexual immorality in that marriage, and he tried all that he could to make that marriage work, and she wanted nothing to do with it, then a certificate of divorce was acceptable by that. That's not, we have to know the heart of Jesus. That's not his first response. He would want to see that worked out. It says God hates divorce. But if there's no reconciliation, what's to do, right? Now, and of course the other one is polygamy, which I don't think, we don't really need to talk about that one much. You know, it's kind of like uh, more than one wife. You know, one wife is a blessing, okay? Um, I, I wouldn't want to be over-blessed by... by <laughs> can I get an amen on that? Amen. Yes, wives are, are a, a singular wife is, is such a blessing. Now, the divorce thing. If you're an elder, the expectation is, is that in the church you're going to be able to counsel and teach and all these different things, right? Do you think that being divorced could be a stumbling block for someone if they found that out? It could be. It could be. Um, I, I don't know. You know, it, it's, it's very difficult to get dogmatic about these, but it's also very difficult to not understand the seriousness of what Scripture is saying because you are going to be in a place where you're trying to minister to someone, just like with the children. Uh, faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination. If that's going on in your home, it's going to be very difficult for you to minister to somebody else and their family if your, your home, own house isn't in order, right? So those, I, I think that in those, what we have to, to go back to again is blameless. And that as we go through these, as you assess your walk with the Lord, as the elders in the church assess your walk with the Lord, are you blameless in these things that are listed? Husband and one wife, faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination. So, First uh, Timothy 3, 4, and 5 says, One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Good verse for us there. Is he blameless in that? Verse 7, The bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. A bishop must be blameless. So we've covered what a bishop was. Same thing as an elder, pastor. And we know what blameless is. So we can move right past that to a steward of God. Everything belongs to God. And I am just managing it. That's the way we need to look at things. 
It all belongs to God. Anything that we have, we'll just manage it. So in the church, leaders, it all belongs to God. We're just managing it. We're either managing it well or not very well. In those bad churches that you were in, it was not very well. Now for the not bees. <laughs> we're not to be self-willed, headstrong. We need to be open to the views of others. Uh, you don't need to have the attitude of, I don't really care what you have to say, I know I'm right. <laughs> we run across people like that, unfortunately, in the church. You must, they must not have an agenda of their own. You don't want self-promotion from those individuals. You know, I, 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 me, 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 I, 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 a lot of that's going on. Stubborn, that's self-willed. It also says not quick-tempered. So you must be self-controlled, under the control of the Holy Spirit, not the flesh. Uh, I read this thing, and I, I never even thought about it before. Don't fly off the handle. And it's in re relation to an axe on the end of a handle. And if it's not on there tight, and you swing the axe, what can happen? The head can fly off. Don't fly off the handle. <laughs> Somebody's going to get hurt, right? Same thing. Not temperamental. Temperamental. They have a temper in their mental, Okay. Ephesians chapter 4 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, nor give place to the devil. James chapter 1. So then, my dear brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Then we get into not given to much wine. Now back in the, new, uh, the early church days, we see where Jesus actually changed water into wine, right? So wine was a part of the culture but they still were not to take it to the point of dissipation, right? It was also medicinal because uh, we even see where Paul encouraged Timothy, a little wine for your stomach's sake, for, for illness. But also in Scripture, it talks about abuse in Ephesians 5.18, drunk with wine in which is dissipation. Once again, blameless, Romans 14.21, anything that causes your brother to stumble. Uh, I don't drink, nor will I drink, for a lot of reasons. I, I just don't need to, for, for any reason whatsoever. But also, I don't want to place myself in a situation where I'm not blameless in that, in that somebody else in the church sees me taking a drink of whatever, and they stumble on that. They're, wow, that must be okay, because they seem to be, you know, pretty strong in their walk with the Lord, so there must be something there that makes that okay, you know? You never want to get yourself in that type of a situation at least if you can't explain it to them. And a lot of times you don't have the opportunity to explain it. You just don't. They see you doing it somewhere out in town and, uh, you know, so they perceive their own thing. So just stay away from it. Uh, so uh, not given to wine, which I think also is not giving to much whining would, would be good too because we hear that a lot. Not violent. Again, self-controlled. Not violent. Motivation by intimidation doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Violence towards another person misrepresents God. Moses struck the rock in anger and misrepresented God. Not greedy for money. The lottery would say, I want it all. Gambling would say, I want more. Covetousness would say, I want what you have. Not greedy for anything, but certainly not money. Uh, James 4, 3 says, You ask 
and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. 1 Timothy 6, 6, Godliness with contentment is great gain. And greedy for money also disqualifies one as being blameless and a good steward. <laughs> if you're a good steward, you're not greedy for money. All right, now for the but bees. Starting with verse 8, but be hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled. Hospitable, opening up your home, uh, taking someone a meal, uh, any number of things, just to be hospitable to another. Certainly not something that you necessarily have to do all the time. It doesn't necessarily mean you have the gift of hospitality, but it, it might mean, certainly, that you're willing to do that, Right? You know, you don't want it to be said of you as an elder, well, they're just not very hospitable. You know, I wouldn't want that. So, an open door to those with problems, the disheartened, the oppressed, the hungry. Romans 12, 13, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. 1 Peter 4, 9, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. So, hospitable, a lover of what is good. All good things come from God. We should be a lover and a respecter of the good things that come from God. If it's from God, it's good, and we should love it. And He has given it to those that He loves. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Good things come from God. It says also to be sober-minded. Uh, that's to think and act rationally out of a sound mind not under the influence of an intoxicant, like wine, alcohol, or drugs, abstaining from negative influence, temperate, moderate, common sense, common sense. We use that term all the time, but certainly someone who is sober-minded applies common sense to a situation. Then it says just and holy. So in relation to others, we need to be just, just as God is just with us, and in relation to God, we need to be holy, as God is holy. Self-controlled. We've really kind of covered that. Uh, every passion and ap appetite is under control in an obedience to Christ. In Galatians chapter 5, one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. So in verse 9 then, we talk about sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. God's Word. All of it. The whole counsel of God. Sound doctrine. Doctrine of the Bible, doctrine of God, doctrine of Jesus Christ, doctrine of the Holy Spirit, doctrine of man, doctrine of sin. We talked about that one before. Obviously, this pastor in Texas doesn't have a doc, isn't applying the doctrine of sin in his church. Doctrine of salvation, doctrine of the church, doctrine of the angels, doctrine of Satan's and demons, uh, doctrine of the end times, all these different things, all of them that are the ologies, bibliology, eschatology, all those different things. Uh, for a better understanding of that rather than getting deep into it here's a book that's in the bookstore as well called Doctrines uh, a, simple, a Simplified Roadmap of Biblical Truth by Raul Reese you may have heard Raul Reese on the radio good book, real good book 2 Timothy chapter 2 says be diligent to present yourself approved to God a worker who does not need to be ashamed rightly dividing the word of, of truth sound doctrine and so on Sunday it talked about sound doctrine in the first verse of chapter 2. So we'll get a little heavier into that at that point. So we see the qualifications for elders in the church. And now 
we're going to take a real quick look at the problems uh, that these elders will encounter. So these leaders will be commissioned to set in order the things that are lacking. What was the Great Commission? Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So leaders are to make disciples, and that's what we're going to be looking at in chapter 2 in depth. So here's the things that need to be set in order in the churches of Crete. Verses 10 through 16. For there are many that are insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. Remember we were talking about that a while ago? Maybe some of that has crept back into the church. We see it very clear right there. Especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain, One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Paul says, this testimony is true. (laughs) I think that's kind of funny, don't you? Cretans are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And Paul said, amen, they are. (laughs) Keeping in mind that this letter is going to be read in public, probably. (laughs) Now, before we jump off that, there was this uh, Cretan poet, like at 600 B.C., that made that very statement. His name was Epi-something. Anyway, whatever that was. Uh, But anyway, he made this statement. Cretans are uh, liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So Paul was actually quoting one of their own poets when he said that. But he also said, I agree with it. (laughs) Uh, Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables, and commandments of men who turn from the truth. And then verse 15 and 16, he says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. I want to finish with this, that that last verse, they profess to know God, but in works they deny Him. I think there's a, a, a classic difference between knowing about God and knowing God. We can have intellectual knowledge about any number of things, right? Same thing would be through, true with Jesus. We can know about Jesus, but do we know Jesus? We can know about God's Word, but do we know God's Word? All those things. So. This is indicative of me to people that are a part of the church in leadership positions that probably don't even have relationship with the Lord. They've just elevated themselves or have been elevated to a position and they don't even have a solid relationship with the Lord. So they deny Him in their lifestyle. They ignore His standard of purity. They are abominable, disobedient, disqualified for every good work. Those two terms that we're just going to keep coming up. Good works... Sound doctrine. We're going to look at that again on Sunday. So, all of us are being saved to do good works. All of us should know and practice sound doctrine. All of us. We see these characteristics of an elder, but did you see any one of those characteristics that wouldn't apply to anyone? I mean, let's face it. These are things that should be present in a person's life well before they're a leader in the church. So, All of this text that we looked at tonight applies to all of us. 
And that's important because as we get into chapter 2 under discipleship, we're going to see we need those qualities in our life. They need to be there, those characteristics, so that we can effectively minister to others. So certainly the leaders, but it's also all of us, uh, we need to have commitment, we need to have character, and we are commissioned. It's, it's, we can't even argue that point. What did, what did Jesus say? Go into all the world, right? He didn't say, oh, by the way, elders, go into all the world. By the way, you know, he didn't select a certain group. It's for all of us. It's, it's the Great Commission. So remember that God is more interested in your availability than he is your ability. Where did your ability come from to start with? God. So how am I going to impress him with that? He gave it to me to start with, right? But God, I'm just so talented at this or this. Duh, I know. I'm the one who gave it to you, right? But are you available to use it? That's what I want to know. Are you going to make yourself available to be used? So we're going to move from leadership to discipleship on Sunday.